I'd like to start with with this question this morning. Which do you like better? Jesus or your church? If you couldn't have both, if you had to choose between the two, which would you choose? Would you choose Jesus or would you choose your church? It's a question I've been asking myself lately because I'm a pastor, right? (laughs) I'm very involved in church. I love this church. I think a lot about church. I try hard to make this a better church. My accomplishments, my resume, my salary, my livelihood, my reputation, my ego even to some extent are wrapped up in church. Which do I love better? Jesus or my church? What if I had to choose what was best for Jesus or what was best for church? What if those two weren't the same thing? They're not always the same thing. What if following Jesus means shaking up the church or rocking the boat or risking or neglecting what I think would be most stable and safe for the church? Which would I choose? Which do I choose? The the fact that we are sometimes faced with choices between Jesus and the church, those choices are not always clear, but we do make them from time to time. And as we saw, what, what Michael Frost has to say about Jesus and the church in his book, Exiles, he says, too often we have imprisoned Jesus in a stained glass cell and want only to worship him, never to follow him. So question, do, do we ever imprison or even stifle Jesus for the sake of our church? Jesus wants to be followed by us, not domesticated, not revered only once a week for an hour or two. And this is the challenge put to us in today's passage. It's a challenge to put Jesus ahead of church, to let Jesus out of his stained glass cell and to follow him. Darnell shared the context of of today's text with us last Sunday. A guy named Stephen has been boldly and effectively telling people about Jesus. And as a result, Stephen's been arrested. He's been brought to trial before the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership of his day. And Stephen gives a speech at this trial, which which Doug uh, read for us this morning. It's basically a challenge to the religious leaders asking them this question. Are they going to choose Jesus or are they going to choose what was their version of church? Their religious laws and commands, their temple. In other words, their religious patterns and traditions and values and culture and institution. And their response to to the challenge we're looking at today from Stephen, which we'll see next Sunday in chapter 8, it will be their last chance in effect. Because this speech, which Stephen gives us here, is the last recorded message spoken by Jesus' followers in the city of Jerusalem in the book of Acts. In fact, it's the last story about the early believers' witness in Jerusalem. 
after this, as we go on to chapter 8, the action is about to move to new locations, which as we'll see will be in Judea and Samaria. But for Jerusalem, this is now the the third time that a leader from among Jesus' followers will be brought to trial before the Jewish high court. And the third time that that leader will challenge the official leadership of God's people to repent, to turn around, and to follow Jesus, to receive him as their Messiah, their King, their Deliverer that God has sent to them. And as it turns out, it will be the third and final time that the Jerusalem leadership, the Sanhedrin, will reject Jesus. This time with an exclamation point, because the first time they only warned the accused. The second time they warned them and then they flogged them. And this third time, Stephen will be lynched and stoned to death. Spoiler alert. This speech that Stephen gives here is also the longest speech thus far in the book of Acts. Probably not because Stephen was more long-winded than the others, but more likely because Luke has done less summarizing and condensing of this particular speech. All the speeches in Acts are most probably summarized for us. You can read many of them as they're written in just two or three minutes. But Luke has likely left this one in longer form, which tells us something about its importance and its climactic nature. Which is striking, given that this is the first speech in Acts not being given by one of the twelve apostles. But rather it's being given by one of the new rising group of leaders, as we've seen over the last couple weeks, in the early church. They were known as the seven. These are the seven who were commissioned by the apostles back in chapter 6 to look after the care of widows. But we've seen with Stephen, and we'll soon see with Steve, uh, Philip after him, who's another of the seven, that these leaders do much more than this. In fact, they take the lead and they pioneer the spread of the gospel message beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. So we'll get to that next week, the week after. But with that background for this morning, let's look at the speech that Stephen gives here. He tells the long story of God's people in the Old Testament. And I used to think as a preacher, wow, here's a convenient summary of the whole Old Testament story. I mean, if I ever need to preach the Old Testament story in one go, this is my go-to sermon text here. Until I looked at the story more carefully and I realized that this is not an even or balanced summary of the Old Testament. Actually, lots of important things are left out. And other things are elaborated upon way beyond what seems to be necessary. So, for example, Stephen only really focuses on three Old Testament characters. He gives passing mention to David and Solomon, to Jacob and and Joshua, but mainly Stephen tells us about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. Stephen isn't actually giving a summary here of the Old Testament at all. He's rather picking a few key moments from that big story to make a point. And the point that he's going to make, we'll see, has to do with who his listeners love better. Jesus or their version of church. As we get into this speech by Stephen, let's remember that Stephen's on trial here. He's been accused 
falsely accused, Luke tells us, of two things. They're found in verses 13 and 14 back in chapter 6. Stephen is being accused of speaking against the law of Moses and the temple. And teaching that Jesus is going to do away with both. That Jesus is going to change or do away with the law and destroy the temple. Stephen is being accused, you could say, of loving Jesus more than he loves the major components of religion. The major components of church. And here's the striking thing. Stephen doesn't really defend himself here. Isn't that what you'd want to do? If you were on trial, (laughs) to set the record straight, to explain why you're not actually guilty of these false charges, why the false witnesses have twisted them to be something that doesn't actually represent what you believe and what you've been teaching. But no, Stephen does not defend himself. He has a higher goal. He wants to give his accusers one chance, one last chance One final chance to hear the truth about Jesus and to turn to Jesus. One more chance to choose Jesus rather than the version of church that was their version, which revolved around law and temple. And Stephen uses the Old Testament story to do this. Because this is a starting place they can all agree on. That's always a good idea when you're trying to persuade someone. Start with the common ground that you can both agree on. So Stephen begins with Abraham. Of course. Abraham is the starting point, the founding father of God's people and of God's story of salvation. And what Stephen points out about Abraham is that God didn't appear to Abraham first in Jerusalem or at a temple God didn't appear to Abraham in any place that we could equate with church or with anything holy. No, where did God appear to Abraham? Verse 2, Mesopotamia, Babylon. The place always associated with darkness, with paganism, with anti-God power. God appeared to Abraham there of all places. God was present. God showed up in that place out in the world. So right here we see that we've got to be careful about associating God with a certain religious place or location. This church building here isn't holy of itself. What makes it holy is that God's people gather in it and God is among us. Or Jesus is among us. Both. And God does doesn't just work in this building. God can't be put in a box like that. And so here's the first reminder that Stephen is giving us from God's story. It's where God first found us and met us as his people. Outside of religious environments, outside of church. And sure, some of you first encounter Jesus in church. That's awesome, But that's also just because you were brought here by others. And they likely were found by Jesus somewhere else. Jesus is very much at work out there in the world. It's where Jesus meets people all the time. Well, then Stephen moves on to Joseph. Joseph, too, encounters God. But again, not in a holy place. Where? Egypt. The other major ancient pagan empire. 
verses 9 and 10. There in Egypt, a spiritually hostile place, God was with Joseph. There in Egypt, God rescued him from his troubles. There in Egypt, God gave Joseph wisdom and ability and raised him up to leadership. Again, God isn't tied by one place. God doesn't just work in temple or in church. And then with the story of Joseph, Stephen also gives his listeners a second reminder. Verse 9. The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. The brothers of Joseph, from whom came the 12 tribes of Israel, they were jealous and so they sold their own brother Joseph into slavery. These are our ancestors, Stephen's saying. (laughs) They rejected the very one God was raising up to lead them. And so here's Stephen's second reminder from God's story. God's people often reject God's ambassadors. Church people reject them, you could say. They reject those God sends them, those God raises up. They reject them again and again throughout God's story. God's people reject God's word, God's work that God sends them through his messengers. Well, for Joseph and and his brothers, God works things out anyway, and the story continues. Despite the evil act of his brothers, God is faithful. God is faithful to take care of them all. And Stephen recounts that story. There's a famine in the land, but Joseph saves up grain in Egypt, and the brothers make a visit to get some, and they visit not once, but twice. And and here Stephen uh, introduces an important theme in connection with people rejecting those God sends. And the theme is two visits. This is an important theme in Stephen's speech. A little later, Moses too will make two visits to God's people in Egypt. On Moses' first visit, verse 23, he will try to rescue a fellow Israelite from an Egyptian who's beating him. And then the next day, he'll intervene between two Israelites fighting. But what do they do? They reject Moses saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? First visit, rejected. It will be 40 years, Stephen tells us, until Moses visits God's people a second time, again, coming to their rescue. So moving on to Moses now and his story, God appears to him too while he's Uh, In exile, in a burning bush, God reveals himself to him. Notice it's not in the promised land. It's not in church. It's on Mount Sinai, off far away in the desert. God even calls that place, off in the desert, holy ground. Later, God will come down on that mountain and God's people will worship him there. Again, all of these appearances, all of these encounters with God, and and there's no temple yet. There's no church yet, so to speak. Stephen is driving home this point, his first reminder to the Sanhedrin, that God often finds, God often meets people outside of temples, outside of what we might consider church. Well, in verse 35, Stephen then switches from storytelling, and he begins to really preach. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? 
And then verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Here, Stephen reiterates his second reminder that God's people very often reject those God sends them. These are your ancestors, Stephen is again saying to the Jerusalem leaders. Sure, Moses gave them the law, but they didn't keep the law. They rejected Moses. They rejected Joseph before him. They rejected God. Verse 41. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. And so here Stephen gives his listeners a third reminder from God's story. He reminds us who made who. Did we make God? Do do we make our religion and then worship what our hands have made? Or do we realize that God doesn't need us? No, God made us. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. And at this point, Stephen quotes two scriptures from the prophets. One from Amos and the second from Isaiah. And the interesting thing about both of them is that both are lifted out of passages where God basically says to his people, stop worshiping me. Stop worshiping me. Stop with your religious rituals and your religious festivals. Stop worshiping me and start following me. Start listening to me. Start obeying me. So first, listen again to Amos 5. I love the way that Marilyn and and Doug read that. Um, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you can find Amos. Um, Amos 5, starting in verse 21. It begins with the part before what Stephen quotes that Marilyn read for us. In verse 21 of Amos 5, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And then in verse 23, away with the noise of your songs. Verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? And then comes the rest of what Stephen quotes. Now, Old Testament people always knew when you quoted a Bible verse, they knew the context of that Bible verse, kind of like if. I say, oh, say, can you see? You know the context, right? You know it's about patriotism. You know it's our national anthem. You know it's about our country and our flag. That's how we need to hear scriptures when when they're quoted. The Sanhedrin knows the context of this passage in Amos. And do you hear what God is saying in Amos? Basically, you're doing church, but you're not listening to me. You're not following me or obeying me. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 2. Again, you can flip over there if you can find Isaiah quickly. It's a lot easier to find than Amos. And again, the Sanhedrin, they know the context. It begins in verse 1 of Isaiah 66. This is the part that Stephen quotes. 
heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And in verse 2, has not my hand made all these things? But then after the part that Stephen quotes, listen to what comes next in Isaiah 66 verses 2 and 3. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at my word. Who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. Again, what does God want? God wants for us to humble ourselves and to listen to and to follow God. And if we don't do that, all of our church worship, all of our church attendance means nothing. The the point isn't about what we make for God in terms of our worship activities. The point is about the fact that God has made us. And so we should listen to and obey what God wants for us. I was once talking to to someone who who used to attend CBC years ago who was complaining to me once quite critically about our worship services, about how people should have more passion and they should have more life when they're they're singing. And, And this person wondered if the people here really love God very much. And, and, and while I totally appreciated their hunger uh, to be part of a passionate community of worshipers, I also made the comment to them. I said, you know, if you decide to go around and look at some other churches for, for what you're looking for in terms of music and passion, I said, don't just look at the surface and, and at what you see in a church service. And, and don't judge people's hearts by that. Because there are people in churches who worship to a rock and worship band like you'd like. And they raise their hands and they passionately sing and they dance. And then they go out the door and they ignore Jesus' teachings. They live selfishly. They sleep around, etc. And this person looked startled. And then they nodded thoughtfully. And later they admitted to me, you were talking about me. Good for them for admitting it, right? And owning it and dealing with it. So again, let's, let's review the reminder Stephen is giving us as he tells this long story very selectively in the things he highlights. First, remember where God meets people and where God found us. God isn't tied to holy or religious places. God is at work out In the world too, in the places of Babylon, in the places of Egypt, God can meet us and find us anywhere. Second, remember, church people have a track record of rejecting God. Of rejecting the messages and the messengers that God sends them. And that makes their worship worthless. And third, remember who made who. God doesn't need what we make him with our hands. And we dare not make our faith, our relationship with God into something that we control. No, God has made us and we are to let him make us into what he wants. Our worship is worthless if we are not listening to God's voice, not obeying God's word. Let me say that again. Our worship is worthless if we are not listening to God's voice and not obeying God's word. 
And then there was the theme of the two visits. Two visits for Joseph's brothers. Two visits by Moses to his people. And here's Stephen's point, the cruncher. God has done for Stephen's listeners and for the Jerusalem leadership right in their lifetime the same thing. God has given them two visits. And before we remember those two visits, is anyone else cold? Maybe we could turn up the heat. I think somebody must have turned it down. Anyway, two visits. First, sending them Jesus. Right to their temple. In fact, Jesus was tried and convicted right before the same court, the Sanhedrin. And they rejected him. They killed him. They crucified him. But then second visit. In God's mercy, God sent Jesus to visit them again. This time through Jesus' followers. Peter, John, now Stephen. God is so patient, so persistent, so faithful toward his people to visit them a second time. And, and that is really a fourth reminder that Stephen gives us uh, gives them through this this story that he tells that God is so faithful through it all. And so what are we to do about these visits? What's the Sanhedrin to do? How are they going to respond? Are they going to continue to reject God? Or are they going to respond at the second visit? Well, here Stephen really turns up the heat on them. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have rejected the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Wow, huh? Next week, we'll look at how they respond. But for this morning, we've got to consider how we're going to respond. And so here's the message to us. Are we listening to God? Are we listening to Jesus? Are we responding to his voice? Or have we imprisoned Jesus in a stained glass cell too? Where we worship him on Sundays, but we don't let him out to be Lord of our lives and to follow him. Who do we love better? Jesus or our church? It's a temptation that we all face. God's people have ever since the days of of Joseph and Moses and Amos and Isaiah, they face this temptation. Well, here's how I've been applying Stephen's challenge about all this to my own life. It's to remind myself that that my job as, as pastor isn't just to keep the religious organization of this church running and smoothly tuned and steady and stable. No, it's even more so to challenge us all to hear and respond to God's voice. And so what does this look like? For me practically. Well different ways. One, one is, is quite personal. And that is a daily pattern. A daily discipline that I've been trying to get into. Which is 
asking God this question every morning. I don't do it every morning, but I'm trying to get in the habit of doing it regularly. And it's this. God, I've got my to-do list and my agenda for today. But is there something else you want me to do today? Is there someone you want me to reach out to maybe who's, who's not on my to-do list? And you know, this is a hard question for me to ask. Because sometimes, before I even begin my day, my to-do list is already overwhelming. And I'm already feeling the stress of it. And so I'm almost afraid to ask God what he might have for me to do. Because I don't think I'll have the time or energy to do one more thing. Which is sad, right? God, I'm too busy doing stuff for you. I don't have time to listen for what you might want me to do. Isn't there something wrong with that? And so sometimes this feels like a discipline for me of of choosing to listen and choosing to obey. Here's a a second thing that that I've been trying to do. I try to intentionally remind myself that I I have to please Jesus more than I have to please the church. Now there's a lot of overlap in that, I know. A lot of times those two align. But... There's, um, there are times where I have to ask myself, am I seeking to please Jesus or am I seeking to please the church? Because there are church tasks where I know that if I don't do them or church gatherings where I know if I don't show up, people will notice, people will comment, people may be disappointed. But there is also a mission that I'm called to and we're called to, to bless people, to serve people, to meet people, to reach out to people. People who are sometimes new to this church, we don't know them well yet. Maybe they're kind of on the fringe. Maybe they don't attend this church. Maybe they don't even know Jesus yet. And and all of this is, is outreach or welcome to those outside or on the edges And guess what? If I don't reach out to these kinds of people, most of you will never know. And probably they will never complain. Right? But Jesus notices. Jesus knows. And so I have to remind myself that just because no one else is going to notice or no one else is going to complain, that doesn't mean I should neglect these people if Jesus is putting them on my heart. Because who do I love more, Jesus or the church? Related to this, I've had opportunities to to counsel people outside the church, to advocate for people outside the church, people who who could use help in some way, prayer, um, encouragement, um, sometimes uh, perhaps financial help through our benevolent fund. And and I've had opportunities also to invest in leaders, sometimes who attend this church, sometimes not, who I wasn't sure that that investment would ever benefit our church. And so again, it's tempting to say, no, I've got enough on my plate already. And and nobody will ever know or care if, if, if I let these opportunities slide by. No one will ever know. And so I'm going to do what benefits CBC. I'm going to do what people expect of me. Instead of asking, Jesus, what would most benefit your kingdom? Jesus, what would best be pleasing to you? 
Now again, that's not to say Jesus and the church are always opposed or even mostly opposed. Or, or that as a church, you don't want me to reach out. You're very supportive and gracious with my time to encourage, encourage me in these directions, even as you reach out in these directions. But there's still a temptation there for me to prioritize what will be seen and appreciated by those within the church or um, will have a clear and direct benefit to the church. So that's, that's me. That's how I have been trying to put this into practice. How about you? What do you love better? Who do you love better? Jesus or the church? Let me illustrate the, the temptation that we all face here with, with, with a story I once heard about a, a primitive tribe. I can't remember the details anymore, but I remember that as part of their animistic religion, they would make animal sacrifices to their God, beating drums, beating their breasts, and then crying out, and this stuck with me, it's very striking, God be satisfied, and God leave us alone. Leave us alone. You see, their God, in their understanding, was a harsh God and an unpredictable God. And so the purpose of, of their ritual was to satisfy and to appease their God, to pay their dues, to make their sacrifices, and then to say, here, we've done what you require, now leave us alone. Don't cause us trouble. Don't mess with our lives. Leave us alone. And here's my concern, that it's easy for us to be tempted to do that with God too. To, to do it with Jesus. Jesus, I'll show up at church regularly. Maybe I'll volunteer for a ministry or a committee. And that's my sacrifice, God. That's my giving you honor. So accept that and then leave me alone. Leave me to live my life. Please don't talk to me personally unless you have something encouraging to say. <laughs> and please don't meddle with my life. Don't challenge my lifestyle. I've already paid my dues at church. So now leave me alone to live my life. Well, when we do this, it, it's just as much pagan idolatrous worship as the animistic tribe. It's making our religion and offering it to God instead of realizing that God has made us and can make can ask of us whatever he wants because we belong to him. It's the very thing that the Jerusalem leaders were doing, defending their temple, defending their laws and their commands, but rejecting the one God sent them, even God's own son. Choosing church over Jesus. Loving church more than Jesus. So let's close with a verse um, from Psalm 95.7. It was written for use in worship services as a reminder to us. I'll read it to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so as many times we've done before, as we close this morning, let's take a moment to be quiet. And I want to invite you um, silently 
to ask yourself two questions. God, what are you saying to me this morning? And what am I going to do about it?